You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, everybody, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive on all sorts of topics that you really need to know about, about what your government is doing or not doing, about corruption, about all sorts of uh, public information that you have a right to know that Judicial Watch tries to uncover through our investigations and research and through our litigation as well. We're very happy that you've joined us. We have a great show ahead. Joining us today is the executive director of the Air Marshal National Council, Sonia Hightower Labasco. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to Judicial Watch for having us this morning. It's great to have you with us. We really appreciate it. And to our listeners out there, uh, we're going to talk about the Federal Air Marshal Service, which is a fascinating organization with huge responsibilities. It's gone through all kinds of twists and turns over the last 50 years. And Sonia is essentially, uh, I'm, I'm, don't, this is loose language or sort of my interpretation of it, but she's basically the head of their union. Uh, that's not a 100% accurate way of describing the organization itself the Air Marshal National Council. I'll let Sonia explain all that, but we really appreciate you joining us for On Watch. Uh, subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening on. Leave us a rating. Uh, let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear discussed. We appreciate your time joining us on Watch. So, Sonia, again, welcome. Give us an idea, if you would, please, about the Air Marshal National Council. I've called it a union. That's probably not 100% accurate. But give us an idea of your organization and the work that the Air Marshals do. Absolutely, Chris. Well, the Air Marshal National Council was founded. Um, it was myself and several other Air Marshals that we got together. And, you know, we looked at some of the bigger unions. We could be a subcomponent in a larger union. But unfortunately, those unions did not offer what we wanted to do. We wanted to be fast. We wanted to hit the ground running. We wanted to be membership based. We wanted to be action driven. So we we formed our association, the Air Marshal National Council. We do not have collective bargaining rights um, at this time, and we are not members of a large union. We love the fact that we're we're a smaller uh, organization. And we pride ourselves on individual membership needs. What do the men and the women in the field need, right? We want to make sure we get that information quick. We get it to the right sources that we need, whether it's filing grievances internally, whether it's filing with the Office of Special Counsel, where it's getting Congress involved on more serious issues like we had recently with the air marshals being um, put in the back door, so to speak, to go down to the southwest border. So we believe in speed and action. So we are quite different from from other organizations. Sonia, the air marshals, uh, when people think about air marshals, they're sitting on, I guess, flights that are deemed to be higher risk or greater vulnerability security-wise. And they are prepared to interdict or take down hijackers. That That's really the mission in a nutshell, correct? That is correct, Chris. We are trained. We do. We do fly undercover on the aircraft. Um, no one but the flight crew knows who we are. And that is our number one goal. If there is an act of um, violence or terrorism on the plane, we are to take care of that as quickly as possible with whatever means necessary. 
I'll tell you a funny story. I was flying back from Phoenix to Washington, D.C. This is probably 10, 12 years ago. And uh, Congressman Trent Franks was uh, serving uh, as a congressman in Arizona at the time. I happened to use some upgrade miles, and I was sitting in first class. Trent Franks walks on the plane, looks around at the audience or the, the folks sitting there in first class, and smiles at me and says, you're going to keep us safe today, aren't you? So for whatever reason, he decided he decided that I was an air marshal. And uh, I smiled at him and said, I'll do the best I can. <laughs> I had no idea <laughs> why in the world is this guy calling out somebody who he thinks is an air marshal. But nonetheless, that was my interesting uh, experience of Trent Franks and, and being misidentified as an air marshal. But give us an idea. What kind of training do air marshals go through? What's the selection criteria? Uh, you know, what, what, give us a, a day in the life of an air marshal. How does that work for them? Well, let's start with, you know, uh, before 9-11, there were only 33 air marshals uh, that were actively working, and they mostly just deployed on international missions. We work in teams, uh, two, four, six, eight. We can work in, you know, a high amount of team, depending on what location we're flying to, especially internationally. But after 9-11, things changed dramatically for the air marshal service. We began flying domestics and international missions with, of course, a heavy emphasis on domestics because of what happened at 9-11. The agency was stood up really quick. The applications back then in 2001, I was a sergeant at Daytona Beach Police Department. When I raised my hand and wanted to become an air marshal, they were the old fashioned bubble applications where they had to mail it to you. There was nothing to do online. They mailed you an application, you called, and gave your address and said you were interested and they mailed an application to your home. And man, when this thing got there, this packet was so thick. I didn't think I was ever going to complete it. It was that thick for your background, who you were, um, because, you know, you have to go through a top secret security clearance as well. So I got my packet done. I mailed it back off. About two weeks later, I got a call um, from the Federal Air Marshal Service. And they said, look, we want to fly you to Atlantic City. They brought me up to Atlantic City for an assessment. I had to go through an interview, extensive medical background. And um, I was hired about two weeks later. That was in June of 2022. I always joke that the application process is actually part of the IQ test, right? Can you, <laughs> can you actually get through uh, all the paperwork and then, you know, kind of navigate all the different gates of, of, uh, of the requirements they place on you just to get there to even be considered? Hey, it was, look, it was like signing a mortgage document, right? You know, when you go to a closing and you've got yep. that stick of papers, you're signing your life away there. Yeah. And you, look, you look at the, you look at the number at the bottom of the page and you say, <laughs> is that a telephone number? Or is that what um, I know? Right? It, yeah. I mean, it was, it was simply, honestly, I was over the moon. I was super honored to be able to come over and help protect our nation. Uh, all of us watched on 9-11 what happened. Many of us were, you know, at home at the, the time the first plane hit the, the Twin Towers. And I tell you, it changed everything in my life. I never had any plans of not uh, retiring at Daytona Beach Police Department. Right. Um, and then 9-11 happened. And of course, things changed. Things, you know, happen in your life where you go, oh, I have to go and do that. I, ha I had to become an air marshal because there was no way that I wanted to allow what had happened to ever happen again in our country. So the training takes place in Atlantic City, New Jersey, of all locations. That's kind of a weird spot. How did it end up there? 
Well, that's an interesting story. In the basic training, we go like um, any other federal law enforcement group, like the U.S. Marshals or ICE, we go to FLETC. Uh, FLETC, you know, they've got several different locations uh, across the United States, but our location was in Roswell, New Mexico. And that's, the, fed- that, that, that's the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Correct. We, we right. flew into Roswell. It's This little Artesia is so small, there's not an airport there. So we had to fly in um, to Roswell and then take a bus over to um, Artesia, which that training, it was it was eight weeks of training. I went in the middle of June. Uh, you can only imagine how um, hot it is in the desert in June. Um, but it it was really great training. I had been in law enforcement for quite a long time before I became an air marshal. And I have to tell you, the firearms training, the standard of firearms that we have to hold to be able to work in that small linear environment, right? If you think about that, think about the next time you're, you're sitting in an airplane and think about the job of an air marshal to have to deploy. And then you have to be absolutely perfect in your shot placement on an aircraft. Yeah, because you can imagine uh, reckless uh, shot placement uh, causes massive decompression at you know thirty eight thousand feet, right? Yes, and you and there there are certain uh, areas that we know that you do not shoot in the aircraft, right? You do your best uh, to make sure that you don't try to go to that area. It could cause you know some issues with the plane and the the mechanics of the aircraft. But the training that we received in uh, Artesia was great. We did eight weeks there. And then you have to finish that up in Atlantic City. We never really understood why Atlantic City uh, was our point of training, you know, because Fletzi had everything that we needed. But um, the Air Marshal Service decided to create a larger training facility for us in Atlantic City. I think maybe it's because the original Air Marshals maybe have been based out of Atlantic City, you know, it's kind of hard in the government to break up and do something new. Everything's <laughs> kind of done the old way, right? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing a New Jersey congressman or senator strong-armed uh, the government into, into placing the training facility there. That's usually how it works. Chris, you've got way too many. you got such a good brain. Let me tell you, your brain firing <laughs> on all cylinders this morning. You're absolutely correct. So listen, you got that, you know, a lot of people wonder. You have air marshals assigned to flights. Obviously, it's not just random. There's got to be some flights that are of greater concern or higher risk. Um, and it's going to be U.S. flag carriers, right? Do you have air marshals that are ever on a foreign carrier? Never. Nope. It has to be a U.S. flag carrier. And we fly on all airlines. It does not matter what from uh, Southwest to Delta to United. Um, the good old days of Continental were great right. when they were around. But yeah, as long as they're an American uh, flag carrier, we, we fly on those aircraft. And, and and just like United States Marshals, uh, you're Marshals in the sense that, you know, you're not constrained by jurisdiction. So as long as you're on a U.S. flag carrier, no matter where that plane goes or what it does, you have authority, correct? That is correct, Chris. We do. We have authority on that aircraft, no matter what country it's in, no matter what state it's in, um, any of those locations, we, we are the lead law enforcement agency that is going to take care of whatever we need to take care of within that aviation domain. So are there instances, so I can tell you from my past life experience, uh, I was an army counterintelligence officer and then, but in that capacity sworn as a special agent of army counterintelligence. 
to doing national security crime investigations. I can tell you that there are many instances when we did stuff, we accomplished things, we enforced the law, we uh, brought about the successful conclusion of counterespionage, either investigations or operations, and no one knows. I mean, the only people that know are people in the chain of command involved in, in running that operation. So the general public has no idea about any number of different successes that occurred. Is it the same thing for the air marshals? Have the air marshals successfully interdicted, shut down, apprehended bad guys, and the public has no knowledge of that? That is correct, Chris. We have. Yeah. So there's Kate. So there's there are bad guys. There are evil operators seeking to, you know, kill people, destroy property, etc. And the air marshals have successfully engaged the target or or taken down the operation uh, in one way or another, uh, either defensively or offensively, shut it down. And the public has zero knowledge, no idea whatsoever. That is correct. I think there was an, one maybe an inside peek behind the scenes in 2005 where you had two air marshals that deployed down when they were at the gate in the Miami uh, airport. Um, there was um, a gentleman that obviously, you know, they didn't know at the time. We found out later he was emotionally disturbed, but he had taken, um, he was in the back of the aircraft. The air marshals were sitting, you know, in their tactical locations and he ran up the aisleway. Uh, the plane was getting ready to push from the gate. It was, it was, everybody was boarded and they were ready to, to, you know, take off. And uh, this gentleman had a backpack and he turned his backpack around and put it, had it on the front instead of strapped it on his back. It was on the front. And he kind of had like a fireman's carry where he had his hands on both um, shoulders of the backpack. And he started running up the aisle stating that he had a explosive device. Um, of course, he ran past the air marshals and they heard him. They heard, you know, that he was stating that he had a bomb. And unfortunately, this individual did not listen to um, the commands of the air marshals and they had to take action and it was deadly force and they were justified in what they did. But I think that was the first time that America got to see behind the scenes because that incident made international attention as to how quick you have to think on your feet, how sure you have to be of what uh, action that you're going to take and that that action has to meet the level to, you know, take that threat away from other passengers. And that's something else I think our listeners need to consider is that not only are there bad guys, right? There's militant Islamist supremacists. There's uh, other bad actors who are looking to harm the country or create terror and confusion. But there's also just whack jobs, right? There's people that are mentally unhinged and or on you know booze, drugs. They 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 present a threat to the safety of the aircraft. And the flight attendants are, are outdone, right? So I know this is a gross stereotype, but just, you know, the the 28-year-old female flight attendant who's 5'2 and, uh, you know, 120 pounds going up against a, a 6'3 guy, that, that's not a good option. That's not a, you know, a, a safe, uh, healthy response. And so the air marshals have got to do something. They've got to get involved. So it's a it's a wild combination of actual real life bad guys plotting to do horrific stuff and then just wackos, just, you know, people that are unhinged in some way. Correct. 
That is correct, Chris. And another thing, you know, we we have to think about when we're we're on the airplane and let's say there is a there is an issue and the flight attendants are involved with that issue. And it could be someone we've I've had incidents where there were individuals that were on uh, narcotics. We have to be careful if we deploy too soon, if we're not sure that that's a ruse, because there are people that are trying to identify us on that aircraft. We have to be absolutely sure when we deploy that that is that situation is not a situation to where someone's trying to expose our our identity on the aircraft. So we have a lot of things that we have to size up within just a matter sometimes of seconds or less than a minute on what actions we're going to take. But you're correct. Um, the flight attendants, they do a wonderful job. They're, they're safety agents. However, when you get a large six foot two, six foot three male who is having a alcohol incident, narcotics incident, and they're trying to open the aircraft door and you have to physically restrain them, you're going to need a few people, not just one. And that's right. why we, that's why we work in teams, because you're at 35,000 feet. There is zero room for error. Right, right. I can remember also after 9-11 that there were reports of uh, there were a few instances where it was clear that some people were testing, uh, doing procedural tests because you have three or four guys get together, you know, uh, by either one of the uh, the service, uh, you know, in a larger like wide body plane, one of the places where the flight attendants prepare meals and drinks, or they they'd cluster around, uh, you know, restroom on the plane. And it was apparent that just based on the movements of these guys, how often uh, they're coming together in certain areas on the aircraft, it appeared, and there were news reports on this, there, it appeared that people were either scouting or running drills to test the procedures on the aircraft. That is correct. We, we had many groups that were trying to test um, our procedures. I remember one specific group, um, they had pretended to be musicians and they were on the aircraft. And what I found so strange about this situation is they kept switching seats. They pretended like they didn't know each other when they were boarding the aircraft. But during the flight, they kept switching seats, almost as if, is anybody paying attention that we're not sitting in the same seat when we got up to go to the restroom and one would go to the restroom in the, in the front and one would go to the restroom in the middle. And then they would come back and sit in different seats. But we picked up on it immediately. And that's why we have to stay alert. You know, everyone else has got their, their on their computer trying to finish up some last minute emails. They're distracted from, um, the, you know, getting to a business meeting or having to do some type of work. Our job is knowing everything that's happening on that plane, but being in a undercover capacity. A tough job, uh, no doubt. Totally tough. So there's a lot of training involved. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of, uh, I would imagine you, you basically, you have your equivalent of target folders where you, you know, you're, you're bound to be covering a particular flight and there are uh, sort of specifics or uh, uh, like I said, like a profile of the flight itself and things to consider and study up on every time there's a deployment. You just don't, you know, go out and hop on a plane just for laughs. There's, there's a reason why you're covering particular flights. Is that true? That's true, Chris. We have 
what we call priority one, priority two, priority three, and priority four missions. They're, they're classified in four different categories. Of course, priority one is our highest priority. And that is a mission that has been deemed, you know, because of the location, it's been deemed a high risk flight because it may be going from East Coast to West Coast with a large amount of fuel. It may be going from um, East Coast to the DC corridor. I mean, I was assigned to Orlando and a lot of our routes, we were the East Coast corridor because we would go up the coastline. Um, so we had a lot of our, our missions, we were deployed to the Washington DC area, which was a priority one flight. So it's been 22 years and uh, no one else has flown planes into buildings. Does that mean that uh, the bad guys have given up? Is that uh, is that an overly naive assessment? Chris, they're never going to give up. They watch all the time. They are watching all the time for our weaknesses. They are going to try again. There's been a lot of recent chatter uh, between Al-Qaeda Al and ISIS in regards to another threat toward our planes. They were successful once, and they're going to try it again. That's why we in the Air Marshal National Council we have to keep this agency on its toes. We cannot veer off track. We have to stay on the mission that we were hired to do. We cannot allow the agency to take air marshals off the aircraft and not backfill those positions. And that's and that's where some recent news and actually, frankly, some collaboration, some work between your organization, Judicial Watch, really comes to the forefront. There's been a lot of real craziness, a lot of reckless decisions on the part of the Biden administration with respect to how the air marshals are being deployed and utilized. Uh, just hit on a couple of topics for us. We can go into the details, but what are some things that are being done that really put the, 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 the flying public at risk? Well, if we looked at this, we, we calculated um, 200 air marshals a month were being taken off of priority flights. These are priority flights. This is not a flight. Like you said, we have a specific reason for being on the aircraft. We're not just showing up and checking in and saying, hey, let's take a trip, you know, uh, to Montana today or let's go over to Colorado. There's specific reasons that we're on those flights in the first place. When the agency chose to start taking the air marshals off the flights, kind of what I say, they backdoored the American people on this. They did this through this DHS plan that Mayorkas came up with, with this supporting the border, the DHS operational plan. And because, you know, TSA is in DHS, they started pulling resources from the air marshals, which made no sense to us whatsoever. We are not in our top shape right now in our numbers. Um, in 2021, a lot of air marshals hit their 20 year mark. They started retiring. We're seeing a huge influx of retirements and have been over the last few years. So by no means are we operating at our highest level as we were in 2002 and 2003. So you're already taking a, an agency that's almost destabilized, really, is what I'm going to say. And you're going to destabilize that agency even more by sending us down to the border. And we just felt that was completely unacceptable. We weighed our odds, too. We're like, if we expose this, we are also going to be letting the bad guys know that we are vulnerable, right? We, we, we looked at those options and we weighed it. And we said between our council, we work with our legal um, council and we looked at this and we said, we have to let the American people know they are on their own when they're flying. 
we just had no choice but to come out and expose the fact that they were leaving us wide open for another attack. Yeah, I can understand the the quandary that you're in because you're sitting there. You can't be a bystander, right? You're watching this sort of negligence on the part of the Biden administration. But then you feel torn because you say, hey, look, if you point out the weakness or the defect, does that mean that you're giving the bad guys a heads up? That's a tough spot to be in. Uh, but you also just can't stand by with your hands in your pockets and go, oh, well, too bad. Um, so it, it's tough. You got to. You're pulling the fire alarm. You know, you, you're, you're pointing out that there's a real problem and you're asking for a reaction. So they, we got some exposure. We got some publicity. I think Mayorkas and the rest of the leadership at uh, DHS uh, were exposed for what they were doing. And really, the air marshals essentially were being abused. You have these highly trained people who spend their lives on planes, you know, uh, looking for bad guys to do stuff. And instead, they're sent to the border and they're involved in, you know, changing diapers and helping people fill out forms for entitlement payments. Uh, it, it, it really is. It appears to me to be a gross abuse. Uh, are they federal employees subject to, you know, as needed reassignment based on an emergency? Yeah. But according to my there's no emergency. So why should they be, be redeployed? Right. That's exactly right. If there was a national emergency that that, you know, Mayorkas invoked or the president invoked in, in regards to the border. We would look at that and go, OK, we've got a national emergency. However, this national emergency has been going on for years. Right. This didn't just happen. This has been going on for years. They they've known about it. They're trying to pretend that it's not a crisis. We can all see we've all watched the stories. We've heard the horror stories. We had air marshals that were deployed on the border that were telling us the border patrol was overrun. And and that was another quandary we were in, Chris. We don't want to leave our brothers and sisters in law enforcement down on the border because we know they're overloaded. We know they have no assistance that's coming in to help them other than people that want to volunteer to help them. That is not appropriate. We have the military. If they had claimed a national emergency, we could have had every type of National Guard, every type of resource available to help our law enforcement partners there. So that was another quandary we were in because we wanted to get this stopped because we were leaving our back door open on the aircraft for another 9-11 style attack. So it, it really was a difficult decision, but at the end of this, they've stopped the deployments as of January 29th will be our last deployment, which we found that, you know, Pretty interesting since hearings and investigations are starting February the 6th in regards to DHS and Mayorkas and the absolute lie he told to Congress when the border was supported. So it's been a it's been a difficult um, situation to bring forward to the American public, but we felt it was so important for them to know because 9-11 is burned in our history, right? Everything that we do as air marshals there's a patriotic basis for not letting that happen again. And this was just one situation. And there are many others, don't get me wrong, but this was one where they were just destabilizing our national security. What are some other issues that the Air, that the Air Marshals are facing? What, what, uh, I mean, there's clearly the whole Biden administration, Mallorca's mess, but as an institution, as, as law enforcement officers who are trying to do their mission, 
what what else are you bumping up against that 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 makes it uh, you know one of these crazy situations where your bosses are screaming more, better, faster, right? That's always the more, better, faster, and your your membership uh, is saying, well, that's great, but you know, and and you have issues that you're dealing with. What are some other some other things that you're trying to tackle? Well, one thing we're trying to tackle is we absolutely have got to be removed or reassigned at a TSA into a legitimate law enforcement entity. We are a very small component in this 65,000 plus administrative agency and the air marshals, they are not being represented within this agency appropriately. Our skill sets, the things that we're doing on a daily basis, they are not being recognized and they're not valued by TSA, period. I will tell you, period, we're not valued at all. If what's, we were- what, what, what's the disconnect? I mean, TSA, God love them. They're out there at every airport. But I'm not aware of TSA ever uh, preventing or interdicting uh, some kind of terrorist attack. You know, I think a lot of it is eyewash, frankly. It's a dog and pony show to make the public feel safe. That's just my opinion. Uh, in, in large part, it's just an effort to line people up and frustrate them. Um, I, 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 perhaps there's, there is a prophylactic deterrent effect. Okay. I'm willing to buy that. Just the, the fact that you have to go through the hurdles to get there. But I think there's probably some other vulnerabilities in our air transport system that are not being addressed, but you know, why in the world would they take you guys gun and badge carrying, uh, special agents and put you in an administrative, uh, bureau really? You know, we were in in the very beginning, we were a component of ICE, which is a law enforcement agency. Things were pretty, they were pretty good from 01 to 2004. And then at the time, DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff, with a stroke of the pen, removed us from ICE and saddled us inside this huge administrative bureaucratic agency. And it is not working. It is not working We've, we're, we're telling the American people, this is not working. We know what we need to do to get this job done and do it efficiently and to be able to have the resources that the air marshals need at every level, every law enforcement level to ensure that nothing like 9-11 ever happens again. So I, I saw some other reporting uh, connected to your organization and obviously dealing uh, with the air marshals about uh, personal identifying data about air marshals being given or transferred in some way to the communist Chinese. What is that all about? They did. Uh, Chris, what they did when we have to go to other countries, you know, we have to fill out certain forms and certain information in regards to getting that country clearance in order to, to visit that, that country. They were ordering, and I want to tell you, they suspended air marshals for this, the agency ordered, this was out of the Washington field office, the agency ordered air marshals to put their spouse, their home address, their um, family members, where they lived on this document to give to the Chinese government. All their what, what, is, what, was that, what was that supposed to accomplish? What... what uh... What's the big victory for truth, justice, and the American way 
in giving the communists, uh, you know, home data and spousal information. It, it made no sense whatsoever. That was another major fight that the council we took up to try to expose, to say, why are we giving China the name and the addresses of air marshals, home addresses, their family members, uh, their in-laws. I mean, think about it, Chris, would you want to go and put your information down and give it to China? Well, sadly, everything about me uh, was turned over to the Chinese because uh, they were able to hack into the government's uh, database of uh, personal st- the statement of personal history, the SF one SF. Let me get the number wrong. One eighty six, whatever it is. The form you fill out to get a security clearance. The Chinese already have all my information, mm-hmm. so uh, you know th- that was part of an earlier hack. Uh, but yes, it's it just it, it is objectively offensive that we're providing personal details of federal law enforcement officials uh, to the communist Chinese. I mean, what the hell? What is the thinking behind this? Why do they need to know that Special Agent Smith's, uh, you know, husband is a school teacher working here doing that and they live in Orlando and blah, blah, blah. What, what purpose does it serve? None. It, it, it endangers. What it does is endanger the undercover agent. It endangers uh, the ability to do counter surveillance on them and their families. And they suspended air marshals for refusing. They said, my, I spoke to my spouse. They do not want their personal information on these forms. They suspended them, gave them days out of the office, unpaid for not completing those forms. How was that finally resolved? What, what was done? Well, COVID hit. And that kind of stopped our travel to China. Um, we filed several grievances within internally within the agency. And they said, no, we have every right. We can order you to put your spouse's information on any document that we deem fit and give it to China. That's not been resolved yet. It's, it's still unresolved. Did they ever explain the motivation? Like, we're doing this because, you know, we get something good or it helps us do whatever. Was there ever really an, an adequate explanation Nope, there was never an explanation. And honestly, we looked at this and said, did did the agency take it personal? Because an air marshal said, no, I don't want to provide my spouse's information on a form. You know, the government, you know, this, Chris, their processes and procedures. That's it. There is no um, decisive thinking or strategic thinking about, well, wow, maybe this is a bad idea. We should listen to our air marshals that they don't want to give their information to China, maybe yeah. onto something. And, and, and generally speaking, the government doesn't react well when you tell it no. They, they get very, very flustered and bent out of shape because you're just supposed to you know, shut up and comply. And when somebody says, no, I don't, I don't agree with what you're doing, it, it causes, you know, you would think that you're uh, threatening the future of the republic by simply saying, I don't want to fill this form out. You, you mentioned COVID, of course, uh, disrupting this uh, the China flight issue and this this subject more broadly. Uh, what's the deal with uh, with air marshals and uh, mandated shots? How did that play out? Well, we had we had uh, several different ideas on that. You know, as I said, we're an individual membership based group. If a, if a member has an issue, they can they call us. They reach out to us. And we work for an action plan for each individual member. The group, of course, we have movements for that. But during the the vaccine mandate, we had 
several, several uh, thoughts on that. Some of the air marshals did not want to take the vaccine. Some had medical issues that their doctor said, hey, you should not take this. This is not healthy for you. Others had religious beliefs. We took that and we worked with our legal counsel, Cindy O'Keefe, attorney O'Keefe out of Chicago, and we filed the appropriate paperwork and the pro appropriate exemptions for those air marshals. And we were able to keep them from being terminated because, you know, they were being threatened with termination like every other government employee about taking the vaccine. And that was a success story. And we came out and we talked about that in, in the public. Uh, the Air Marshal National Council, we took a lot of backlash from other unions uh, to the point they were viciously attacking us, saying that we were putting Air Marshal's careers at risk. We should be ashamed for, for filing exemptions for them, um, that we were going to get Air Marshals fired. But we did the right thing based on what our membership wanted, individual members wanted. Now, that's really what it's about, right? The, the, these agents, a lot of people in the federal government, particularly law enforcement, essentially you park a number of your in, normal individual civil liberties at the gate when you sign up to say, okay, I'm going to raise my right hand, take an oath. I'm going to put myself in a position. I have special authority. I have special trust uh, granted to me. But in return, I can't always necessarily do everything I want. It's, you know, there's, it's a it's a paramilitary or, or, you know, this law enforcement environment where uh, you got to play by certain rules, much respect and authority is granted to you, but also much is asked of you. And so people get kind of jammed up in a tough position like that when it comes to their own personal health or civil liberties. And I can understand that some people are going to object, but I can also understand how there'd be a lot of pushback on your organization as well. It, it had to be uh, it had to be tough uh, for you trying to uh, respect everybody's position. Was that was that a hard thing for you to kind of navigate through? It was, Chris, but I looked at it and what uh, what we dealt with with our legal counsel was the individual rights of a person. People have a choice. You cannot take their individual rights away just because they work at the federal government. Those rights were established long ago. And we we looked at that and we said individual rights matter. And as I said, we, we are an association for individual members and we took it and we ran with it and we did the right thing for our membership. And I think that we were successful in the legal uh, arena that we fought in and we won that battle as well. So listen, looking ahead, we, we've talked about some of the mechanics, the actual you know give and take of, uh, of daily air marshal service and kind of the procedures and processes that uh, the air marshals go through. Uh, and we've talked about the current situation. Looking ahead from, from, from your membership, what are they most concerned with? What, are they, what, what would they like to see or get done? What, what's the forward-looking view uh, for federal air marshals and your organization in particular? Well, I, the, the number one thing that we're hearing about right now is the inconsistency with any type of flight schedule. Um, the air marshals, we used to get a schedule 28 days in advance. We would get our schedule. And of course you're working all three different shifts. Air marshals don't work one shift. You're working a day shift one day, you're working a second shift the next day, you may be working a midnight shift the third day. So you can imagine in a five day period, you're working all three different shifts. And at times you're going through five or six different time zones. Um, 
that's very taxing if you do that week after week after week. And a lot of our guys and girls have been here, you know, 17 to 20 years now. Um, I think some consistency within the schedule, we're really going to push. There are no regulations for the, the flight times that air marshals can fly. The flight attendants and the pilots are regulated by the FAA. So they have, uh, you know, maximum flight times that they can fly. Air marshals have no maximum times. They, they have deployed air marshals for 24 hours straight before, which is unsafe. You have a weapon. You need to be sharp. You need to be fresh. You need to be able to respond. Yeah, that's that's an officer safety issue. I mean, that's uh, and, and not just the personal safety of the officer, but also the, the, all the people he's interact he or she are interacting with. That's a very grave uh, decision point there. Putting people on twenty four hour shifts and expecting top performance at thirty eight thousand feet in a pressurized aircraft. That's a little nuts. And and look, if it's not safe for the pilot to fly the plane because they haven't had a max, you know, a, a minimum rest period, or the flight attendants, then it's not safe for the person carrying weapons on the plane to be flying either. I can't tell you how many missions I was on internationally, and we would be at the airport flying back to the United States, and because the flight crew did not get enough rest time, we would have to wait at the airport for a new flight crew to arrive at the airport to fly back to the United States. So we basically would be on duty six hours prior to a 12 or 13 hour flight. Um, but we had no, you know, minimum weight, no minimum rest time that has got to change. We want to be, we want to do quality work, not quantity right now, everything in the air marshals with the federal marshal service, it's about metrics. They want to show these big numbers. They want to show they're doing a lot of flights to Congress, um, and it's not necessary. We need to do quality flights, flights, not quantity. Because of my personal background, I have all kinds of questions that I'd love to ask you that I know that I can't. <laughs> because I have, for your, for the, the organization's operations security, you, you, there's no way in the world you would openly answer the question. But And nonetheless, it's very intriguing to me about some of the mechanics of how you guys operate, what you do, and and what you do, what you do once you get certain places, uh, and obviously it's stuff you, you you can't discuss for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to have to save my questions for some other day, some other format. Um, listen, uh, you know, Sonia, the work that you're doing and representing all these air marshals through the Air Marshal National Council is incredibly important. We appreciate the opportunity to interact with you and to try to get the word out. We've done some reporting on it. My colleague, Irene Garcia, who writes our Corruptions Chronicles blog, has written some really terrific articles. Uh, we also have our, my good friend, uh, Mark Spencer, who's our Judish Watch representative in Phoenix. Uh, I know the three of you have, have worked together on trying to uncover facts and get the word out to the public. Um, as, as we go to wrap up uh, this edition of On Watch, I want to give you the last word. I'd like you to discuss... Uh, Whatever it is that you think is most important for the American public, the flying public out there, to know about uh, the air marshals that are protecting them, and of course your organization, which is trying to protect those air marshals. So, Sonia, uh, I'll give you the last word before we wrap up. Well, we want the American people to know that we've got their back. That every day that we 
come to the this situation where we may have to take action. We're thinking about the American people, their families. We're thinking about those that we lost at 9-11, the 2,977 people that were murdered, the 6,000 people that were injured in one day. Every day that weighs on our heart heavy, and we're going to do everything within our power to never, ever let that happen again. So in saying that, Chris, we appreciate the American people's support and what we're doing in our program. Reach out to your congressman, reach out to your senator, ask them why the air marshals are struggling so hard in TSA to be relevant. When it's relevant, when you're flying on the plane, your safety should be number one. And that's where we want things to go. We want the American people to be number one. Sonia Hightower Labasco, Executive Director of the Air Marshal National Council. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about uh, the work of the Air Marshals and the work of your council and trying to represent them. I know that our listeners uh, got an earful. Uh, they probably are, have learned a few things and maybe raised a few additional questions. If folks want to get a hold, get a hold of you or your organization, how can they contact you? Well, they can go to our website, airmarshalnationalcouncil.com. Send us a quick email. We'll be glad we answer every email that comes in. We'd be more than happy to discuss any issues or give them information that we have in regards to what's going on behind the scenes. And I just want to give a big shout out, Chris, to you, Irene, and Mark. We couldn't do this without you and Judicial Watch. So um, you're patriots, and we appreciate your patriotism. That's very kind of you, Sonia. Thank you. Uh, Sonia Hightower Labasco, Executive Director, Air Marshal National Council, and their website is Air Marshal. Uh, that's just as it as you would imagine, Air Marshal NC for National Council, airmarshalnc.com. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you out there listening to this podcast. I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.